I was with a group of leaders this week, and we were facilitating a conversation around a conference table, and these leaders were all very public figures, very visible in their leadership, and we were talking about fear, and it became readily apparent to me that probably the greatest fear in the room that they were at least willing to divulge was the fear of failure. And think about it, a leader, I mean, you think about the relentless nature, the lonely nature of leadership, the public nature of it. If someone fails, um, you know, like a salesman, then uh, they don't close the deal. Who knows about it? Only they know. Let's say you're, you are a pastor and you preach a bad sermon. Let me ask you, who knows about it? Everybody but you, right? Everybody but you. There's great fear uh, in leadership, and we have fear of failure. Some of us, our greatest fear is probably fear of rejection. Uh, we have fear of the future. We have a fear of the past, of something uh, coming out about us or being found out. There's all kind of fears that reign in the human heart. When I was reading through Luke's gospel this week, I found a very uh, strange incident and uh, comment about the disciples. And it says when Jesus was foretelling his death, which is one of our greatest fears, nobody wants to think about death. Many of us fear it, maybe at the top of our list. But it says this about uh, the disciples and Jesus in Luke 9, 45. It says, they were afraid to ask. Their fear was asking. And when you and I choose to not ask, we're choosing distance in the relationship. We're moving away from intimacy. We're choosing distance because we're afraid to ask. Fascinating when you put this in the whole sweep, the grand sweep of things in scripture, these were uh, mostly Jewish men that this was said about. And there was something about the people of Israel. Other nations had great kings. It took Israel a while. Other nations around them had vast armies. Israel was not militarily very strong uh, throughout most of history. But what did Israel have? They had a book. They were people of the book. And that book gave us many different genres of literature, including something called lament. And it was customary. It was it was invited, it was smiled upon for the Jewish people to bring their deepest questions and their darkest emotions to God. They were invited to do so. In fact, those questions were not only allowed, they were welcomed. They were documented and recorded and set to music. And this great book, the best-selling book of all time, has a songbook smack dab in the middle with questions like these. Why do you hide from me, chapter 10? Why are you, chapter 42, why are you so far from me? Chapter 55, can I fly away? Chapter 22, why do you forsake me? Does anyone recognize that? That was the question that Jesus asked from the cross. It's the question we'll look at in a few weeks on Palm Sunday, leading right up to Easter Sunday. Why do you hide? Can I fly away? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? These and other questions, the deepest questions, expressing the darkest emotions are not only allowed, they're welcomed for us to ask. So today I want you to turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 13. If you don't want to do that, that's cool. We're going to put it up on the TV in just a minute. We're going to look at six verses in Psalm. There's only six verses in chapter 13. Some of you are already thinking the sermon can't go too long then. Just six verses. And I want to submit to you that this chapter, chapter 13 of the book of Psalms, is really divided in three parts. And it's kind of strange for a preacher to say that, but I think there are three moods. There are three experiences, and what I want to give you today, three invitations that the psalmist gives us in these six verses, 
And here's the first invitation as you turn or get there. It's the invitation number one. The invitation to what? To complain. Does that strike you as odd? If you've been around here, particularly on a Sunday about a year ago, I checked into the sermon archives. It was almost a year ago that I stood here and preached from Philippians 2.13. Do you know what that says? It says, do all things without complaining. Do all things without grumbling. Do not complain and you can just look around you here's what I know if you complain a lot people don't really want to be around you we don't ever say man that person complains a lot I want to hang out with them the scripture says it gives a command do not complain and if if you remember about a year ago I gave you a challenge I said what would it look like for you to leave the church that day Fondren Church and walk out here and for 24 hours not complain and it's hard to do isn't it it's really hard to do for some of you But you took me, some of you took me up on your challenge and you admitted that you didn't make it for 24 hours. There's just something to complain about. I have this experiment experiment I run whenever I'm standing in a line where there's people around, I'll just walk up and I don't even know anybody. I'm just standing in the line and I'll go, man, this is ridiculous. And you just say it out loud and all of a sudden you have five to 10 friends around you because they also think it's ridiculous. What, What I do, I just complained, right? But listen, nobody really wants to be around you. You can spark some conversations with strangers but complaining, here's the promise that's given in Philippians 2.13. Do not complain about anything, okay? Listen, you will shine as a bright light amidst a crooked and perverse generation. That's flowery and poetic. Let's just make that simple. If you don't complain, people will notice. And they will wonder what's up because there is a lot to complain about. But if you don't, okay? So there's this scripture, but here's the key. The invitation and the green light that I'm giving you, we're going to read it in the Bible Uh, That's our source book. We're going to read it in just a second. But it is an invitation to complain. And here's the key. The only kind of complaining that God greenlights is it depends on the direction of the complaint. You know, and I don't, there's organizations fray and teams break up and families come asunder. Churches get hurt when we talk about people and not to them. You remember last Sunday we talked about a life-giving rebuke. What a life, if you can go directly to a person. But something about us chooses to talk about people instead of going to them. It's fun to talk about. It's a morsel of juicy gossip if we talk about someone. And we can frame the argument in our favor. We can build a case against somebody. But scripture, Matthew 18, says if you have a case, a complaint, go to that person. Here's what's beautiful. That's horizontally. But this is a vertical thing. Because there's going to be some times in your life where only one can do something about your complaint. Only God. Oh, those people that live with you, that love you, that hug and kiss you and slobber all over you and say good things about you and remember your birthdays and all that. Like, they love you and they want to help you, but only one can bring the can bring a breakthrough. Only one he, who is really, really able to redeem and deliver. And so invitation number one is to complain. Is complaining good? It depends on the direction of your complaint. Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, you'll see in these first two verses, the segment of the invitation to complain, you'll see the question, how long, presented four times in just two verses. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Anybody run the Mississippi Blues race yesterday? Anybody do a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon? Anybody do that? Anybody run the full marathon? Do you know that our, okay, great. That's, well, maybe next year. Can we kind (laughs) of, can we set some goals, people? All right. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kind of church I'm looking for. Talk back. We'll be out of here at 1231. But no, Chris Mixon, he was here at the 930. And by the way, you'll feel better at 11 o'clock. Nobody in the 930 apparently ran the full marathon. But Chris Mixon did, our student pastor. He ran it. You ready for this? In two hours and 52 minutes. Two hours and 52 minutes. Here's what Chris never had to do. Was it grueling? Yes, he pushed himself. He finished third overall. There was a guy who finished uh, second. He's a sports reporter for WAPT, ran cross country at Missouri, I believe, University of Missouri. And then some dude who won it all. He's a pharmacist at Kroger, I understand. An incredible runner. He ran it last year and won it. He's gloating. He's on the, like, on the stand going like that. And Chris is down below him, really taunting him. So we'll, uh, we're going for him next year. Chris is going. When I say we, I mean Chris is going for him next year. Here's what Chris never had to ask along the course. He never had to say how long. Did he hurt? Oh, yeah. Did he push his body? Yeah. Was it burning? Did he want to quit? Let him tell you. But he never had to ask how long because what? There were mile markers all along the way. And man, I didn't run the full marathon yesterday. But when I'm going through something hard and I'm hurting and I'm, you know, I wish there was a sign. I, I wish there was a marker that said 13.1, you're halfway, RG. 16, mile marker 16. You only got, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, 24, you're almost there. Last mile. Because human experience teaches us, and those who've suffered far greatly than most of us in this room can tell us, that if we just knew how long, if we just knew how long. And what's fascinating to me is that David is the writer of this, and he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Now, we get that. There's not a lot of explanation. Like when the Bible uses some simple metaphors because we're, you know, simple people. The Lord is my rock. He's stable and sturdy and strong. He's not going anywhere. You know, all the changes and fluctuations around us, he's the rock. His face will shine upon you. That's easy for us to understand. Sometimes we, uh, we're trying to figure out our church, I guess. We're non-denominational, so lots of questions fly around in the air. But uh, you may, some of you are from a faith tradition where you close the service with number 6, 24 and 25. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he, he turn his face towards you and give you his grace, turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. It's a beautiful picture because God's face is shining. God's face is for you. God's face represents his glory and we're humans we have faces we understand that and this is um, speaking anthropomorphically that this is attaching something to God in a metaphorical way his face shines upon us 1995 my, she was sitting here on the front row at the 930 service but I, I met Susan and I flirted with her and it was a lot of fun, and it was magical. And I knew that she was showing an interest in me. But I'd spent most of my life up to then just flirting. And I knew that my flirting was uh, born out of insecurity. Yes, it was fun, and it evoked some laughter, but it was born out of a lot of insecurity. It was my way to protect my heart. And I remember thinking, does she like me? And there was this moment when I took her books. I asked her, and she said, yes. And we had gone on a few dates, but I, I knew that in a few weeks we were about to go 2,500 miles apart where she lived and where I lived. And it would be massive. And so I was wanting some clarity of where this thing may go. And when I took her books, that was the first sign of victory. 
She said, yes, you can walk me back to my dorm. And as I was walking her back there on the campus of Colorado State in Fort Collins, Colorado, she stared at me the whole time. She looked at me. Her face turned toward me, and I was thinking, you know, I wasn't sure if she really, really liked me. But by the way, I mean, she, we were walking. You ever done this? Somebody's just like this. And I was like, man, this, this is cool. And she, her face was turned toward me, and I thought, man, she, she likes me. She likes me a lot. And I was fired up because her face was turned toward me. And if you're not for somebody, if you're not really with somebody, if you're in a relationship of any kind that's not going well, oftentimes you're not seeing their face. You're looking down. You're looking away. You avoid that. But when you love someone, the face turns toward them. And what a beautiful picture of God. For many years now, when I have gotten on my knees to pray, I prayed a prayer similar to this, asking God's face to shine upon me, upon my family, upon this church, upon the work of our hands. What went into this? Because we read it in our Bible, and I put a little bit of wattage into it, but it's easy for us to read, go, how long, Lord? How long? And we get the repetition, but I imagine it's, how long? Lord, how long? Long? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you be against? How long? What was David going through? I imagine it had something to do with a sling and a shot. The Philistines had invaded Israel when David was young. And they decided, both leadership sides decided, that they wouldn't go full army against full army. That they would make... Um, they would decide victory by a representative. And the Philistines were represented by a brute, a big guy named Goliath. And Goliath came into the battlefield, and Israel was represented by a youngster named David, whose only experience in the battlefield was protecting his family, warding off wolves and lions and such. And as the story goes, the rock flies, and the giant falls, and the Philistines flee. And David, overnight, becomes an instant national hero. That's a pretty good day, isn't it? And in addition to being an overnight national hero, he was the object of wrath and rage from a king named Saul who was insane in the membrane. And David, if you think about it, he went from the wonder boy who married the king's daughter, having access to the palace, to being on the run. He was fleeing. He had to get to Bethlehem to save himself, to save his family. The, the king had already thrown a couple of spears at him, and so now he was really gunning for him. And so David is 22, and 22 turns to 23, and 23 to 24, and 24 to 25, and 25 to 26. And so in year five, he's probably asking, how long? We don't live in a world when you're in the battle and you're fighting something. We don't live in a world where God says or the, somebody around you says, hey, you just got a few more miles. Got a couple more weeks. And David is experiencing what some of you did in a different way but the same where he didn't know. God, how much longer? So the first invitation is the invitation to complain. The second invitation is an invitation to ask. Simply to ask. This portion, these few minutes are so rudimentary, so foundational, I may lose some of you, but I'm asking you to incline yourself for just a moment. 
Invitation number two comes from verses three and four. It says this, consider me an answer, Lord my God. Remember I told you there's three different moods in these six verses? Notice the mood change. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. I am convinced that I work in a profession that it's very common and too common and an abject tragedy that there are so many people in ministry who publicly talk about God but who have ceased to privately commune with him. And I would say, if you're a crusty Christian and regular churchgoer and have been for years, let me preach to you for a second. It's easy for us to check out of prayer. We've tried it and found because it's, it's not a direct line all the time that it just doesn't seem to work out. And so we fall back on our methods and strategies. We'll throw one up before a meal or before a Christian meeting or, or follow the worship leader in church. But do you pray and do you call out to God? I was reading Mark's gospel months ago. And in the first chapter, there's a man who has leprosy. And in his leprosy, you understand that they were, I mean, you thought we were like, you thought it was weird during COVID to sequester ourselves and to stay six feet apart and all that. Imagine having leprosy where you're seen as an unclean person. How long? How long? There's no cure. And they didn't know. Doctors back then weren't like doctors now. They didn't know to what level of, of you know, was it contagious or not and to what extent. Imagine uh, someone who loves you never being around you. They bring you a meal and they put it on a tray and slide it towards you and run away. And this man cries out, God, Jesus, heal me, make me clean. That guy knew how to pray. Do you? If you read a couple of chapters over in Mark chapter 5, Jesus goes to Capernaum and there's a man named Jairus and his daughter is 12 years old and she's sick. And nobody wants to lose a daughter. Nobody wants to lose a 12-year-old daughter. And she seemed to be so gravely ill. Uh, this man cries out for Jesus to touch and heal her daughter. This dude knew how to ask, do you? There's a woman in Mark chapter 7, two chapters over. And her daughter is possessed with a demon. Jesus had crossed the Mediterranean in a boat and he had landed in Phoenicia and he meets this woman and she falls down at his feet and she says, will you heal my daughter? Will you cast out this demon, this sister? She knew how to call out and pray to God, do you? And here's what I am convinced of because of its familiarity, because of its routine, because of our past experience, we have largely given up on prayer. Do you remember Jesus, I'm sorry, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, in the fourth chapter, he says, you do not have, does anybody, can anybody finish it? You do not have because, because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. And I think we miss that. The second part is, it, it preaches better. It says, you ask and do not have because you desire to consume it upon your own lust. You're praying a selfish prayer. You're praying a boast me, you know, build me up, God. You're praying that type of prayer for your own desires. And we focus on that. But just the first part of James chapter 4 and verse 2, you, you do not have because you do not ask. Psalm 13 gives us, in this question of how long, it gives us an invitation to complain to God, but it gives us an invitation to ask him, to cry out to him. 
You know the super familiar passage, most of you do, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything with supplication and prayer. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Y'all heard that nod if you've ever heard that before. And here's what I wrote in my study Bible not long ago. We want the peace without the pouring out. But the peace comes after the pouring out. How long do you keep praying? Somebody needs to hear this today, but I'm just saying you keep praying. You, you keep praying and you keep calling out, not because, you see, we think our waiting, our, in our waiting, it's about getting what we want. But it's not about that. It's becoming who Jesus wants us to be. And there's some things that can happen in waiting that can't happen when life is grand at every other level. And so we must pour out. In Luke 17, Jesus tells some parables, and they're very human and earthly and, and odd. And Jesus, they're simple. Like there's this woman, and she just keeps asking this judge, and she keeps asking and keeps asking, and he gives in. There's a widow, and she keeps, she keeps asking, and she keeps asking, and they give in. And Jesus said, same way for you. You ought to pray and not faint. And so we see this mood shift. And I think, you know this humanly, in horizontal relationships, you can talk about something and nothing happens about the problem. But if you go to the leader, something could happen about that. And there's a big difference that, there's a big difference in going to God because he can do something. And when you go to the one who can do something about it, whether he does or not. Lewis Smead would write that the hardest part about waiting is that we think a not yet is a not ever. Hold on. And keep praying and keep going to God and cry out to him. Have a secret prayer closet and a humble posture and ask God to move. And whether he does in the way and the timing and the manner that you want, listen, there is a promise of peace. And some of you can testify that he gives peace. What kind of peace is it? It's a peace that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. There ain't nothing like it. It's a peace that even though the tumult is around you and the storm is still raging, there's a peace. And that's what he gives. There's this third invitation that we're presented, and it's in verse 5 and 6. The third invitation is the invitation to trust. The invitation to complain. The invitation to ask. And the invitation to trust. Look at verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted. Would you, as you read this with me, would you notice the tenses, past and present, future? But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Would you play along with me? Would you say this out loud? I'm going to ask you the tense of each line. But I have trusted in your, un, in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Future. None are present, are they? Where do you live? present do you need anybody need something now right now but david is here and the mood has changed he's complained to god which makes all the difference in the world he's asked god he's cried out to him the mood has shifted and now he is saying you've done this i believe you will do this could be an advantage of walking with jesus through the years find you a faithful saint who's seen some answers to prayer Find somebody that can talk to you about the peace of Christ and see if it can happen in your own life. This has happened. I have trusted. 
I will rejoice. This will, this will happen to me. This will, this will be true. I, you can, you can tell me to be a lot of things. You can tell me to be kind. You can tell me to be careful. You can tell me to be safe. You can tell me to be prepared. You can tell me to be on time. You can tell me to be on my toes. Just don't tell me to be patient. I just don't want to be told to be patient. Ask my mama. Ask my wife. I, I don't want to be told to be patient, but it's only in the patience that something can happen. You, can I tell you what can happen when you're waiting on God? When you're waiting on God, you can be renewed in spirit. Only in the wilderness, only in the waiting, can you be really close to Christ-like compassion. Only then, when you've waited, do you learn your limits. Because you can't do anything about your situation. You must rely on him. You must trust him. You are invited to complain to him. You're invited to ask him, and you're invited to trust him. Now, think about these three moves, these three experiences. They all happened in six verses. That's for the reader, the orator, the preacher. Uh, you could read this six verses on your own. It would probably take you 35 seconds. But do you go from, the, do you go from complaining to trust in 35 seconds? If, if God has a miracle. But otherwise, it's weeks. It's months. It's years. And it's easy for us to believe that our current situation is perpetual that it's persistent, and that, again, to quote Lewis Mead, that the not yet is the not ever. But we wait and we trust. Listen to me, waiting around and waiting on God are two very different things. Waiting around is you're sitting around, and you're probably stewing, and you're probably fretting. And if you can't do something about it, do something. Be active. Worship him. Be around God's people. Cling to the writers. As an, can I tell you what's helped me through the decades? All right, I'm not, I'm not getting any younger up here. Through the decades, I'm an impatient person. I like to move fast. I push people around me. But the best authors on my shelf, they're contemplative writers. And they've written about the peace and trust and quietness that comes from knowing him. And I need those women and those men, many of them dead and gone to heaven. But I need them to speak into me because I battle with patience. Isaiah 32, 17 puts it this way. The result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet, confidence forever. There are two words in this verse. Uh, help, think with me. Two words in this verse that go together a lot. You use them quite a bit in language today. You don't say righteousness a lot probably. Ready? You got them? Peace and quiet. Susan and I have friends they, um, they got married the same time we did. They had babies the same time we did. We stopped at God's number, which is three, and they kept going. They would send us their invitations. They would meet up with us. Oh, we're having, guess what? We're having number four. We're having number five. We're having number six. Guess what? We're having number seven, Travis told me one day. And I'm, I thought, man, I am so happy for them. I'm so happy it's them. And I, I just, and when, we do, when we talk to them now, what are they, peace and quiet? Oh, yeah, just hoping for some peace and quiet. Here's the tripping thing. If you have seven kids, I don't know if you're going to get peace and quiet. But you don't have to have any kids to need peace and quiet. You can be 70 years old, living alone. You can be 44 and empty, or 54 and empty nesting, and you're, you're looking for peace and quiet. You could go to bed at night and nobody's in the room. Jimmy Fallon's turned off, and it's just you, and you're looking for peace and quiet. You see, peace and quiet is the opposite of arrogance and boasting. And this trust is seen 
at us slowing down and realizing, as Richard Mao said, the former past president of Fuller Theological Seminary, your God is too fast. Your God is too fast. God is not too fast, but your God is too fast. When God came to Abraham, he said, you are going to be the father and you're going you're to start a whole people, a whole nation. How old was Abraham? Any Bible scholars in the room? How old was Abraham? He was 74. How long did he have to wait? About 25 years. When God tells the Israelites that he will free them from Egyptian slavery, uh, they have to wait how long? Ready? 400 years. When God comes to Moses and says, you will carry my people uh, across the Red Sea into the promised land, how long did they have to wait? 40 years. The difference between the end of the Old Testament, which is a letter, a book called Malachi. Anybody know the last words of the Old Testament? God will turn the hearts of fathers toward their children. That'll preach. And then, mysteriously, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of what? Of waiting. But a Messiah will come. Oh, so Jesus, is that, that's it. And so when Jesus comes, right before in Luke, we're told about a man named Simeon. It says that he was righteous and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a devout man. And it says he waited on, for the consolation of Israel. How long, Lord? And Jesus came, and here's what's tripping to me, is that the disciples, even with Jesus, still had to wait. Why do you think you don't? Why are some of y'all looking for a church where the preacher will tell you that God has instant miracles every time? Acts 1, 6. Upper room, before Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, how long? Lord, now? Now? Not yet. Not yet. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Back up two verses in Acts 1. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. I can't stand up here, no preacher can, and properly interpret the mind of God for all, universally for all. Why does God make you why is he making you wait i don't know your situation but i know there are things that can happen only in our waiting to the church at rome paul would write suffering produces endurance when you're waiting you're suffering and that waiting that suffering produces endurance endurance produces proven character proven character produces hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of god is shed abroad in our hearts by the holy spirit who's given to us there are things that can be produced in us proven character is one man you know one of the things i love about susan she's got some proven character if you hire someone and have to fire somebody they they you, you didn't know about their character character they had to prove it and they didn't prove it proven character happens in the crucible proven character happens when we wait and when we suffer and we don't know that's what happens and that's what god wants to produce in us and you know the difference between a child and an adult. The adult has the capacity more times than not to wait a little longer than the child. The child wants it now and, get, and throws a, a fit. I've, I've seen some of your kids. And they throw a fit right in the store or the restaurant or whatever. Our kids never did. But like, you, you know, we, we get that because there's something to us maturity-wise. But spiritually, are you mature enough to know that if God told those disciples to wait, he's going to tell you to wait. And something can happen in that waiting. As the team begins to make their way up, stay focused uh, on the message, if you will, 
in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Do you not know, have you not heard, that the Lord our God is the everlasting creator of the world? He does not grow weary or faint. Youths grow weary and faint. Young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. You know this, don't you? They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. If you know about birds, and there's probably no chance we have a bird expert in the room, but there's three methods of flight for birds. A bird can flap and fly. A bird can glide and fly. A bird can soar and fly. And if you're flapping, the, the, the poster child for the flappers are the hummingbirds. Anybody have a feeder out back and the hummingbird comes up? And this is more like grandma stuff, I guess. But like you got a grandma, she's got a, you know, a hummingbird. They flap their wings. You ready for this? Up to 75 times per second. You can't even see it. Flapping is hard work. Flapping is difficult. But there's gliding, and gliding is when you get a little bit of wind, and you can, you, can, you can coast for a little while. It's more graceful. Gliding is more graceful than flapping, but it's still work, and you can't do it for long. But then there's soaring. This is a method of flight where you catch the thermal air, you catch the warm winds, and eagles do it better than any bird ever known to man. And they get up there, and they can go 80 miles per hour. That's the speed some of y'all pull into 11 o'clock service on Sunday mornings. 80 miles per hour and they are at great height, phenomenal height. Only the eagles can do that and they are soaring. It has caught them and they can go a long way. This could be you in a season. There's only a few ways that we move about. You could be soaring. The Spirit is sending His fresh wind into your life. I would say to you, enjoy the ride and thank God for it. It's not what you're doing. You have some disciplines. Keep doing those disciplines. If you're soaring, you're around God's people. You're in the Word. You're attuned to the Spirit. You're living out some holy habits. Man, keep that stuff going, but it's God's grace that allows you to soar. But you can't soar forever. And there's times, secondly, from Isaiah 40, where you're just running and you're not growing you're able to do that through dogged determination through sheer persistence you're able to run it's not always easy when you're soaring prayers are being answered miracles are happening it's God's goodness when you're able to run and not grow weary you don't know if some prayers are going to be answered there's a lot of challenge and then there's a third way you're not able to soar or able to run and not grow weary you're just at a place where you can walk and not think And if that's you, and it's you now, I would say don't compare yourself. And hang in there. And stay after it. And watch and see what he can do. How long, oh Lord, let him speak to you. Take this invitation to complain to him, to ask him, to cry out to him, and to trust him. Lord, bless the word that was heard. Let it have its effect in us. In Christ we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're, all, we're inviting you to come to the table. I would love for our leaders to come to the station first. And if you're a Christian, uh, if you're not, hey, you, you want to sit this out and just, uh, you can participate through watching the room. I would invite you to pray. But if you're a believer in Jesus, come to the table. Follow the person in front of you. You'll get two cups. 
They will tell you this is the body of Christ broken for you. That's the bread. This is the juice representing the blood of Jesus shed for you. Take those cups. Make your way back to your seat. And and during the song, in a moment or two, in your own timing, do this, as Jesus said, do this in remembrance of him. The one who says, trust me in your waiting. Let's, Let's be obedient now.